Hello, I'm Nadi Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be focusing on monoclonal antibodies as a treatment option for COVID-19. To discuss this are IDSA members Dr. Eric Darr with UCLA Medical Center, Dr. Alyssa Letourneau with Massachusetts General Hospital, and Dr. Roger Bedimo of the VA North Texas Healthcare System. Thank you all for being with me. Dr. Darr, I'd like to start with you. The FDA has given emergency use authorization to two monoclonal antibody treatments for COVID-19. How do they work to combat the virus? The concept of a monoclonal antibody is really, in essence, thinking of it along the lines of an antiviral agent. And these are monoclonal antibodies that um, target the receptor binding domain of this all-important spike protein, which is the interaction between that and the, the cell receptor, the ACE2 receptor. So the idea would be to have these monoclonal antibodies provide passive immunity, give them to people, they bind this receptor and they prevent infection. Uh, So one mechanism as an antiviral and they've been widely developed and being pursued both for things like prevention and treatment of mild disease and treatment of severe disease. The first two positive signals really came out in the context of this mild to moderate disease. These are the people who are not yet hospitalized, which is a population that has somewhat been understudied because So much focus has been on treating those people with severe disease in the hospital and the development of treatment strategies such as remdesivir and dexamethasone. But the majority of people with COVID-19 are treated as outpatients. And we know that there's a substantial proportion, depending on their underlying risk based on age and comorbidity, that will go on to develop the need for hospitalization and death. So intervening early in this population of individuals could have a huge impact on both their morbidity, their mortality, and also importantly right now, an impact on the number of people requiring medical services in a, a hospital environment, such as emergency department or in um, the hospital or ICUs. So it's more important than ever, but these are early days. And uh, the two EUAs, which were released on a single monoclonal antibody given as an infusion versus a combination of monoclonals given as an infusion, Uh, Both were studied in early phase one, two trials, not phase three yet. And both of them had a primary endpoint of reducing viral shedding in the nose. And they did demonstrate this to a statistical level. But they had important pre-specified secondary outcomes, which were to reduce things like hospitalization and emergency department visits. And in both cases, uh, they were demonstrated to do that. And when they really focused on the highest risk group, in the phase two, three trials for hospitalization, for example, or emergency room visits, they found that they both reduced the requirement by about 65 to 70%, which sounds like a really big number, but the absolute number of individuals hospitalized were relatively small. Um, And because of that, although they're both available through this emergency use for an indication that we have no other treatments for, based on the emergency use authorization standard of might be effective, they are available, but the supply is limited. They're being recommended for a very specific population of individuals that are at high risk for hospitalization or emergency department visits. And these are available through the emergency use authorization. People can find these online or at the NIH guidelines to provide them some guidance. 
And the NIH guidelines based on the data available sort of have left them in the category that there right now is insufficient data to recommend either for or against their use, recognizing that there's an important signal and also noting that they really shouldn't be considered the standard of care yet. But because of the EUA, they are now readily available for the right population of high-risk individuals who have access to it. And that has proven to be one of the challenges, and I know we'll be talking more about that this morning. Thank you, Dr. Dar, for your answer. Dr. Badimo, turning to you now, how did your particular institution prepare for administering these monoclonal antibodies, and are you receiving both products available under the EUA? The preparation answer has two parts. One is adequately identifying the people who are most likely to benefit uh, from the, these interventions. And the second one is figuring out the logistics of administering them. And following up to, to what Dr. Dar just discussed, the EUA has specified the people who should be prioritized for receiving these monoclonal antibodies. And this is mostly based on, like Dr. Dar said again, the secondary outcomes from the phase one and two studies from both uh, uh, monoclonal antibodies which were found to be most beneficial in reducing emergency department visits and hospitalizations in uh, people with high risk of progression. And so the EUA has specified this as people who have a high body mass index uh, greater than 35, uh, who have chronic kidney disease, diabetes, who are either have immunosuppressive conditions or medications, uh, and who are uh, older than 65 years of age. Now, figuring out how to identify these uh, populations who get tested and rapidly prioritizing them to receive the monoclonal is, is a big challenge. So that's the first part uh, of the answer, but that is what should be done if you wanted to do uh, them justice. The second part is figuring out how to administer these uh, uh, products in the hospital. Like Dr. Da said, this is not for hospitalized uh, so we have to identify people who come for testing and either in the emergency department or in clinics, but who do not yet have uh, signs of uh, moderate to severe disease that require hospitalization and have a location which we have tentatively determined as a location within the emergency department or infusion clinic where they can receive the monoclonal antibodies for up to an hour and another hour for follow-up uh, as indicated. So these are the two things that uh, we're determining and to, to decide uh, whom to uh, give the progress to and in what settings. So far, we have received uh, allocations from uh, Bamlanivimab, but not yet for Kasarivimab and Indevimab. And these will be adequately allocated, uh, equitably allocated to all uh, veterans uh, hospital facilities who have the, uh, determined that they were able to meet those conditions that are outlined earlier. And we expect that soon the same will be done for Asirivimab and Ibitimab. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Badimo. Dr. Letourneau, what are the unique challenges and issues to consider in setting up delivery systems for monoclonal antibodies? They are quite complex, uh, as just discussed by Dr. Badimo. Things that need to be done that are, are challenging are, again, sort of identifying patients quickly enough, uh, ideally within three days of a test being sent, which are how the clinical trials were conducted, 
in in patients in whom they have only had either you know fewer than 10 days of symptoms as that is where we see the maximum benefit of these monoclonal antibodies and trying to identify those high risk patients as mentioned can be quite difficult if a system were to target 65 and older, that is relatively easy. We have an age uh, for, for most patients in our system, uh, but a BMI is much more difficult. We don't have, always have a height registered for all of our patients. And so trying to identify patients globally as opposed to having patients referred in so that we're, we're maximizing patient benefits across our institution is one of our, our major barriers and major concerns. And one thing we have been working on, which has already been mentioned, is, is thinking about how do we do this equitably. We want to be able to help those that have been hardest hit, which are frequently in socially vulnerable populations, and we want to be sure that they have equal access to these therapies. Patients in these areas don't always have primary care providers or are not always connected into systems and trying to figure out how to reach those patients to be sure that they benefit, especially when they may be older or may have a BMI of 35 or greater, which is the patient population we have seen the, the greatest benefit of these therapies. And again, sort of piggybacking on what has been said, seeing that these monoclonal antibodies are still under emergency use authorization and are not considered the standard of care by the NIH and IDSA treatment guidelines, we need to have a shared decision-making discussion with patients. And, and this can be complicated. I agree with this approach, but it's time-consuming in terms of not only identifying the patient, reaching the patient, having this discussion, and then being sure that they really do understand the risks and benefits. And sometimes frequently this requires a, a medical interpreter given some of this, the language barriers that we've had with some of our populations here. Uh, and again, having a primary care provider potentially being involved in those conversations is key because potentially a patient would only participate if they understand that their physician is recommending this. But trying to get those conversations together with the team who's trying to do these infusions, along with the outpatient primary care provider who's obviously very busy, can, can be complicated. And then if you can get a patient to agree, having them come in to have the infusion can also be complicated. So one, you know, patients need to be examined when they arrive because if they're too sick to get the therapy, you know, obviously we need to send them, uh, send them to the emergency department to be evaluated. The infusion is an hour, they need an hour of observation time, um, and then they need to be followed to be sure that there's no unexpected infusion-related reaction or anaphylaxis. So you need a team able to resuscitate a patient if necessary. Some of the places where this, you know, has been considered and some of the calls that I've been on is, you know, do we use an emergency department, although that can be difficult, especially in the hardest hit areas where this would be beneficial, the emergency departments are already full. If you want to try to use an infusion center where there are already patients receiving chemotherapy and other therapies for immunosuppressed patients, you're now bringing in a COVID positive patient. So the logistics of organizing that and being sure they're kept separated and, and the infection control processes that need to go into that is obviously very complicated and, and challenging. This is not something that most people have done before. Most institutions have not. We have not had a, a therapy that is, is primarily uh, infused through, through intravenous methods in, in the outpatient world for, for a pandemic. So this is just an, a new process for all of us. Some places have thought about infusing patients at home. So sending a team to go infuse COVID positive patients at home which obviously re requires resources. Uh, I know some facilities have decided to try to uh, engage EMTs and paramedics to do this, and obviously they would be well-equipped to, to respond to an episode of anaphylaxis were it to occur. Anaphylaxis is rare with these infusions, but it is the one thing that we wanna be sure we can take care of if that were to happen. 
And then something for our socially vulnerable patient populations is, you know, transportation. So where the infusion clinic may be is not really in the communities where uh, patients are hardest hit. And so being sure we can transport patients in, which is also a unique challenge when they have uh, have COVID-19, and then potentially providing childcare or elder care because the patient may not be able to come in because they're unable to have resources at home to help care for the others while they're coming in for their infusion. So these are all, you know, several of the, the challenges that we have been facing here. In addition, thinking about staffing. So we need staff to do all of this. We need we need people to call the patients, nurses and, and providers. We need pharmacists, pharmacists to mix the, the monoclonal antibody therapies. We need nurses to infuse the patients. Uh, and this is all in a time where we are short-staffed and seeing that a lot of, of these uh, staff members are already working on inpatient wards uh, due to the surges that are happening right now. And then the other place we have had a push-pull is that we are now trying to stand up vaccination clinics, which require many of the same staff to be able to do this. So, so a lot of challenges in, in trying to do this, and, and it's been difficult, especially with uh, the amount of data that has been shared with us. If these work, this will be amazing, and it'll be great to be able to provide these. But in the sense of how much data we have, et cetera, it's really hard to put in the resources to do all of this, uh, to stand up these, these clinics quickly and to be able to do it equitably across our, our system. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to covid19learningnetwork.com. Excellent points, Dr. Letourneau. Dr. Dar, turning back to you now, given the very limited supply available, what is your institution's protocol for selecting patients to receive monoclonal antibodies at this time? It's a really important question, and I think one that initially everybody was very concerned about because we knew that the supply was going to be limited. Um, but as was discussed, I mean, really beautifully outlined um, how challenging it is to identify people that are potentially candidates for it, provide them appropriate counseling, particularly acknowledging that these the data is very limited. So it's not cut and dry as to whether everybody who's otherwise a candidate really should be encouraged to receive such therapy. Uh, and then finding the right place for this infusion to happen for a given individual. In light of that, I work um, within a county system in Los Angeles, the Department of Health Services, facilities, which is a safety net setting. Um, so we serve many people uh, who are often in those underserved communities. Uh, it's been really a big challenge to find people that are both appropriate and interested in the treatment. So although we originally planned to start by just being very stringent about only allowing access to those who strictly met the criteria in the emergency use authorization, that has not yet been a problem for our setting. Uh, so I think it probably is in other settings uh, where the supply may be even more, more limited, uh, but for us it is not. Um, and just sort of to piggyback on the, the issues already raised, I live in Los Angeles County where we're approaching about 15,000 new infections a day for more than the last week. Many of those people, not all of them, but you don't know who they are until you do the outreach, many of those people are potentially eligible. So if this was a highly effective therapy that was considered the standard of care, I think the onus would be on us to make sure that every single one of those people knew about this as an option. Uh, we're not quite there yet. 
Uh, so it hasn't been a shortage yet. Um, it might be in the future, particularly if data gets stronger to support its use and guidelines make stronger recommendations for it. But I can't resist making a pitch that um, it is not the standard of care and that there are other studies ongoing for this population, including using monoclonal antibodies as well as other agents. Uh, there's a major study, it's part of Operation Warp Speed called Active 2 um, or at risedabovecovid.org. People can find out about it. There's a national website. There's now almost, I think, 80 active sites around the country that are participating in these trials, making these kinds of therapies available for people who are at high risk with mild to moderate disease and not yet hospitalized. Uh, so I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see how things play out as more data becomes available. But in the interim, the best we can do right now is make sure people are aware, make sure the providers are aware, and continue to refer people to these important clinical trials. You raised some excellent points, Dr. Dar. Thank you. What recommendations do you have, Dr. Bedimo, for improving the distribution and allocation of monoclonal antibodies in general and to ensure equitable access? Ensuring equitable access will be difficult. I take note of the DHHS's allocation and distribution plan, at least for Bamlanivimab, and I imagine it's the same for the other monoclonal antibody, where uh, allocation to states will be determined by the incidence, the local incidence of COVID-19, as well as uh, hospitalization rates. The latter is probably a closer estimate or a better metric for where we have people with higher risk for progression, i.e who are likely to get hospitalized. Now, from the states to these people who are the most vulnerable and the more likely to benefit is where things get a bit difficult because we will have to identify them early and make sure that they are linked to care to see these monoclonals. And if we rely only on testing, we're not always testing the people who are most at risk for progression. And there are very significant uh, disparities in, in who receives testing. So we cannot really go by testing and ensure that people are receiving uh, equal access uh, to, to these. Another challenge uh, at risk of taking us up off topic for this equitable distribution is that now we are butting up against distribution of vaccines. And vaccines are to be prioritized per the Advisory Commission for Immunization Practices to people who are also at higher risk, including by age. Now, if you give these people monoclonal antibodies in priority, you may need to delay their access to vaccines because we, as yet, have no data on safety and efficacy uh, of COVID-19 vaccine in persons who receive monoclonal antibodies or, or convalescent plasma. So, the CDC so far is uh, advising to defer immunization to up to 90 days. So this really has to be taken into consideration when you're deciding whom to give monoclonal antibodies to. If it's somebody who's very vulnerable, who is likely to be in the first tier uh, for receiving vaccines, I think it's important to take that into consideration uh, to deciding, into deciding whether they are to receive that monoclonal antibody, knowing that that might call for delaying their receiving uh, a vaccine. So uh, equity is a difficult uh, topic. I know that some states have enlisted their ethical, ethical institutions just 
make sure that we really have equitable distribution of this uh, very uh, scarce uh, resource, but also one like Dr. Dar has uh, alluded to, uh, with as yet unproven benefit, um, uh, save the trials that we are referring to. Making sure that where testing is done in priority to people who are like more likely to develop severe disease, and whenever uh, testing data is available, that th these will be queried to allocate the monoclonal antibodies to people who got tested positive recently and who are most vulnerable. Now, if the allocation is to healthcare facilities as it is now, I think that that limits the availability to people who do not have access to these hospitals. Now, I wish I had a better uh, answer, a better suggestion to how equitable to distribute these products, but they are more likely to benefit people who are not in care within a healthcare system. So if the product is distributed to the healthcare facilities, it, it creates that inherent challenge. Here in Massachusetts, that is exactly what we were trying to do. So one, look at which populations are tested and see if there's a testing gap, which we know there is for some of the more socially vulnerable populations that have been hardest hit. We looked at the turnaround times for testing in those areas and decided as a state, uh, the Department of Public Health decided that we needed to be sure that any of the healthcare institutions who accepted monoclonal from the state would have a plan to be sure to track and provide monoclonals to those socially vulnerable populations. So we need to report that to the state, uh, any of the facilities who, who are using monoclonals uh, to be sure we're doing that. The, there was discussion as well as trying to get this into some of the um, community health centers, but infusing in community health centers, again, with a with, uh, few staff and being sure there are people there, few staff needing to be able to do this in addition to everything else that they're doing makes that much more difficult. But being sure that there was a mechanism by which patients who are not affiliated with the larger um, healthcare institutions that have the monoclonal, being sure there was a way to refer those patients in and get those patients in. Because again, some of the patients are getting tested in our Stop the Spread campaign, which is run by the state, and those results go somewhere, but they may not have a primary care physician, but may have a BMI that's 35 or greater and, and be, uh, have, have some benefit from receiving monoclonal therapy. So, so that, again, is a huge challenge to try, to try to do this equitably with few resources as well, which is one of the main issues. Great points, doctors. Dr. Letourneau, I'd like to stick with you. Is your institution collecting data or participating in a registry to track and monitor patients receiving these monoclonal antibodies? We plan to collect data uh, for quality and safety purposes to be sure and see how patients do with this therapy as well as to see, you know, how many patients are uh, accepting this as therapy, how many are actually being infused because someone could accept it on the phone and then come in and refuse to be infused and then following to see what outcomes they have. And then we, we are not currently participating in a formal registry. As far as I know, we are just getting started here, but we will be following to, to make sure that we, we track outcomes for, for these patients. Doctors, I'd like to open the floor for any final thoughts. Along the lines of what's been discussed, I think the most important thing is that institutions who have access to this therapy have put in a great deal of thought, as my colleagues have described, as to what's necessary to make sure that for any provider and patient that want to take advantage of this opportunity through the EUA, that they do indeed have access to it. And that 
we make sure that that extends to people who are often disenfranchised in our society may otherwise have less access. Uh, and that requires a lot of thought. It requires a little bit of extra effort for sure. But I think it's an obligation we have to our, all of our communities. Yeah, all I would add to that is that this is uh, highlighting yet again the challenges in adequately capturing where the infection is occurring in a given community and what groups are most affected and making sure that those are targeted in these early interventions to prevent uh, progression of the disease and, and hospitalization or death. Uh, since we do not have a good way of tracking uh, these data, we do not have a good way of administering this product if indeed it's eventually found to be very efficacious in that population. And that will extend to if it becomes proven that it's also uh, monoclonal antibodies are also efficacious in prevention rather than in addition to early I'd like to thank Drs. Letourneau, Bedimo, and Dar for their time, expertise, and participation. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.